a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explore the tension between modern cancer care and negative side effects. Our first guest, Professor Mark Dawson, is an oncologist and clinician scientist at acclaimed cancer treatment centre, Peter McCallum Institute. We were then joined by our second guest, Tanya Wells, the lead clinician and founder of the Melbourne Integrative Oncology Group and incredible cancer survivor, Heather Whitaker. Professor Mark Dawson is the head of the Translational Hematology Program, group leader of Cancer Epigenetics Laboratory and consultant hematologist. Widely published and awarded researcher, passionate educator and public voice, Professor Mark Dawson is one of Australia's leading lights when it comes to cancer care. So we're here today to unpack a contentious topic, something that's often the subject of dinner party chat or phone calls between friends. the sticky, sometimes tricky subject of whether or not modern cancer therapy is toxic. But before we dive in, I thought I'd turn to you, Mark, and ask you a bit about your journey to becoming a haematologist and a clinician scientist. What made you, what made you decide to go into this area? My, my interest in, in cancer probably arose initially during my training as a medical student. Um, I... As you, as you well know, we get rotated out to various country places um, as medical students. And during that time, I met a number of very inspirational cancer doctors out there and felt that they really strived very hard to, you know, bring equity to cancer care, both between the rural and urban setting. And I also really enjoyed working with cancer patients, but probably... The time I realised that I wanted to be a haematologist was when I was doing my intensive care rotation. Haematology patients are invariably the sickest patients in the hospital. By and large, they get a cancer that is not um, driven by something that they've done to themselves, such as smoking or alcohol. Most haematological malignancies really arise through bad luck, you know, or, or reasons that we don't really understand at the moment. Yet these patients were you know, in their, their time of great adversity, incredibly um, grateful for the care that they were getting. Uh, they were able to deal with this adversity in a way that um, really brought out the best in humanity. Um, and I felt like those are the type of patients I wanted to work with for the rest of my career. That's a very um, interesting insight to understand that there are there's a difference between, I guess, the nature of the causes across the cancer space cancer spectrum because I guess for the everyday um, punter, uh, cancer is cancer. And it's, it's very tricky because um, on one hand, when a diagnosis of cancer lands, people often feel, well, why, why, why was this done to me? But on the other hand, 
And it would seem increasingly there's an emerging pressure that comes from the wellbeing industry, um, the suggestion that cancer is your fault. It's the the manifestation of a bad lifestyle, toxic thoughts, um, an energetic field. How how do you, as an expert, how can you say that some cancer is, I guess, bad luck and some of it's stuff that we can control? How, do, how does one work that out? Okay, so for, for decades we have known uh, the etiology or what really underpins uh, the development of certain cancers. For instance, we've known for a long time now that smoking causes lung cancer. We know that UV exposure causes melanoma. But for diseases such as acute myeloid leukemia, we still don't understand what underpins the initiation of this cancer. When you say initiation, is what you're talking about the initial mutation? So my understanding is that all cancer has its origins in a a mutant cell that just photocopies wildly. That's a pretty good summary. Um, Blunt, but... (laughs) So, you know, the, the one truth that will forever be observed is that all cancers have mutations in their DNA. Um, and and that those mutations really give the cancer cell a survival and a proliferative advantage. They no longer respect the environment that they're in. That is, they no longer pay attention to their neighbours. They're able to grow out of control and overtake the space. They overtake the nutrient requirements of, of their neighbouring cells. And this ability to proliferate without control is what is the major feature of a cancer cell. Um, and, and so that is largely driven by different mutations in the, the DNA. Those mutations are different for different cancers. So the mutations that drive melanoma are very different to the mutations that drive lung cancer, which are very different to the mutations that drive breast cancer, which are very different to the mutations that drive some blood cancers like acute leukaemia. Okay, so I'm going to be devil's advocate because what I do. Um, but zooming right out, would it be fair to say that uh, very healthy people, people that maintain amazing habits, are at lower risk of all cancers? So certainly we know that people who... Uh, so obesity has been shown to have a greater risk of developing certain cancers. Um, people who smoke have a greater risk of developing certain cancers. People who consume alcohol in, in great levels uh, also have a risk of developing certain cancers, as do people who have fair skin and largely ignore the ability to cover up and protect themselves from UV exposure. So, you know, if you don't do one of those obvious things, your risk of lung cancer or your risk of cancer in general is lower. But do we see patients who are extremely healthy? Do we see patients who have, you know, an, um, uh, a very active lifestyle get cancer? Of course we do. You know, and there are some great examples of elite sportsmen such as Lance Armstrong who got cancer. Um, and I suspect he had a very good lifestyle. I guess the reason I'm driving at that is to sort of pull out the tension between, say, our immune fitness, the fitness of our immune system, and how cancer um, runs amok. So many, many people would understand chemotherapy to be a kind of poison that preferentially attacks the rogue cells. But some others would argue that this is, it also does a huge amount of damage 
to the body's innate ability to fight back in the process. So let me take, take, take up some of those thoughts then. You're absolutely right. The, an intact immune system is extremely important to preventing cancers originating and expanding. And we've really come to realise how important this is just in the last couple of decades. We've known for a long time that patients who are on immunosuppressive drugs for autoimmune diseases have a higher incidence of getting cancer. What we've learned is that the immune system, through surveillance of um, normal cells and picking out abnormal cells, is able to eradicate several cancers that develop in their infancy. And without this usual surveillance, the risk of developing cancer is much greater. So if we kind of, let's let's introduce the, the concept of modern cancer therapy, and I'm going to propose please correct me if I'm wrong, that there are sort of four main types. We cut out the cancer, we warm up the cancer, we radio, radiotherapy, we kind of zap it, chemo, or this new genre of drug, immunotherapies. But all in all, these methods are either kind of mechanically or chemically or from a heat point of view trying to um, obliterate the cancer, but in doing so harm the body's immune system. You're right. Most of those modalities, and I'd add one one more pillar to your existing four, um, and that is that of targeted therapies. So that is a, a rapidly expanding armamentarium that we use in cancer care. What is a targeted therapy? Well, as I said to you previously, when cancers develop, they develop as a result of certain mutations. When we know what that mutation is, we might be able to build a drug to specifically target that mutation and therefore it's much more targeted towards the cancer cell and spares normal cells that don't have that mutation. And the best example of that is a drug called imatinib. Um, Imatinib has really transformed the natural history of a disease called chronic myeloid leukemia. Chronic myeloid leukemia is driven by an abnormal chromosomal translocation. So what happens here is two chromosomes break and abnormally fuse together. And when they fuse together, they form this abnormal gene that drives the cancer. Now, by developing a drug that just targets that abnormal gene, we've been able to take patients who would ordinarily have gone on to get allogeneic bone marrow transplants and now keep them alive for 20 plus years just by taking a medication. So we've taken what is potentially an aggressive cancer and transformed that into a chronic disease. Um, And many of these patients are approaching a normal lifespan. So that's how effective targeted therapies can be. And and in the vast majority of those patients, those drugs are very well tolerated. The sad problem is that that cancer is the exception, not the rule. Whilst we have targeted therapies for many cancers, few get the responses that we have seen with chronic myeloid leukemia. That is a very, um, I guess, inspiring um, and hopeful I guess, green shoot emerging from cancer care. But one of the things I'm mindful of is how many, how many people out there in the blogosphere and the general public are increasingly taking, taking some of their cancer care into their own hands and perhaps questioning um, mainstay treatments such as chemotherapy, opting for Ian Gawler-esque type approaches. Um, you know, whether it's meditation or diet or... Um, you know, fasting, these things seem to be moving into the mainstream. And I, I guess 
I want to ask you, as a as a cancer doctor, um, how much is the system doing to either stress test, incorporate, um, knock out these kind of activities, given that when you've got a cancer diagnosis, time and attention is limited. We should be investing ourselves in the things that work. Should we be investing more in those things? Like when you go to a hospital, should we be on personalised diets or do you think that the current approach um, addresses people's individual needs sufficiently? It's a good question. Lots of my patients ask me about alternative health measures um, and they're not to be fully dismissed because the principles that underpin them are important. If we take meditation, for instance, taking time to look after oneself is really very important. Um, Similarly, the various diets that have been proposed to alter the natural history of cancer, well, I think the principle there is a good, healthy diet is what's important. What worries me is that we in the community have a number of people who take advantage of the desperate situation that many of our patients find themselves in. And it is there where I get both upset and angry Um, because if there was a treatment that really did transform the natural history of a disease, we would be giving it to that patient. You know, there is no conspiracy driven by government or pharmaceutical industries, etc., that are preventing us as cancer doctors from giving patients the best available care. That's what we've all strived to do. So it worries me when patients pay $1,000 for a litre of carrot juice because somebody told them that this is going to cure their cancer. The evidence for things like this simply just doesn't exist. And when it does, we will incorporate it into how we treat all our patients with the various cancers that we treat. I'm going to be a bit cheeky here and say that the, the, the you know, coffee enema carrot farmers of Australia probably aren't going to fund a study and they are to an extent relying on celebrity to sell these things. But it would seem that people are still very much engaging with these things out of a sense of, um, is it curiosity or desperation? I mean, we only need to look how far Bell Gibson's net was cast to see the hunger for more holistic care. Do you feel that there is enough funding going towards creating that evidence? I mean, there's been lots of studies done, both investigator-initiated studies that are not sponsored by large pharmaceutical companies that have investigated the importance of supplemental um, vitamins or, or nutrients, for instance. There are a number of ongoing studies right now across the globe looking at whether high-dose vitamin C can change the natural history of cancer, partly because there is some experimental evidence to suggest that this might be the case. But for this to be rolled out properly, effectively, we need to study it in detail and we need to study it in a controlled environment where all of the data is being collected and we're not relying on hearsay or, you know, N equals one and it worked for me kind of data because, you know, it's those kind of things that are dangerous. I'm going to pull out a few more Um, apricot kernels. Occasionally they're delicious. But <laughs> but that's something that I've heard people work. The, the coffee enema. You know, again, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly um, 
what, you know, it's a well-established fact that the placebo effect has a role to play in all treatments, you know, be it for arthritis, be it for various other pains, be it for cancer. Um, and it's hard to know to what extent that, that that plays a role here because it has not been studied in a systematic way. What about fasting? Unquestionably, nutritional balance is very important. Fasting or periodic fasting um, has been shown to be important not just for the way we respond to, to challenges from the environment, but actually for our longevity. You know, in model organisms such as worms, flies, and even in mice, where this has been studied in detail in the laboratory setting, caloric restriction has been shown to have, you know, far-reaching benefits, including increasing the duration of one's life. If you had cancer, Mark, what would your lifestyle shifts include? I would maintain the same lifestyle I have now, which is a balanced diet where I exercise um, and, and I would put my trust in, in what is evidence-based care, which is what we practice. Professor Mark Dawson, thank you so much for joining us today on The Alternative Truth. Thank you. What struck me about Professor Dawson's lens is that much has and continues to evolve on the cancer care front. Whilst the jury is in on the overall impact of things like smoking and UV exposure, it's still very unclear about what causes many cancers, let alone promotes them. Broadly, we know that an intact immune system is essential to stop cancer originating and expanding, and that whilst all cancer treatment impacts the immune system, we now know that new generation targeted therapies are offering very promising and specific results. Still, my interview with Mark left me with some outstanding questions. Why do extremely healthy and very active people get cancer? How far can a healthy lifestyle take most of us? How do we really know how fit our immune system is? First, let's hear from Tanya and Heather. Tanya Wells is a naturopath with over 20 years clinical experience in integrative oncology. Tanya and her team at Melbourne Integrative Oncology Group focus on evidence-based complementary medicines to reduce side effects of treatment and enhance outcomes. Heather Whitaker was one of her patients. She was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in 2018. Heather decided to use an integrative approach to her treatment. She had surgery, chemotherapy and radiation and used a number of complementary therapies prescribed by Tanya to manage her side effects. I thought I'd start with Heather and ask you a bit about your, your diagnosis and cancer journey to date. Sure, thanks, May. Um, so my story actually starts four years ago with the, my husband's suicide, and I reacted to that in the way that I had always learned to, which was to soldier on and be very resilient. Um, and so after a couple of months off work, I went back to my professional job and went back to competitive running and scheduled in my grief on a Wednesday with a counsellor as, as I could, as, as planned as I could. Um, and then two and a half years after that, I, had, I found a lump in my left breast. And within a week of having serious tests, I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. So it's a fairly rare and aggressive form. And I guess the kind of catalyst for my holistic journey started when about two days after diagnosis, I went to a book launch at a um, local cafe and I um, was sitting on the floor cross-legged, um, 
It's the first time I'd sat in a meditation pose before and I had a moon boot on because I had a stress fracture from running. And I was feeling really sore and tender and from all the tests and fairly disconnected from my environment. And Asha Packman got up to share his story, and I know you've had him on the first series, May, and he talked about his experience with suicide and cancer. And when I looked up and, and saw him talk about that experience, I could really relate to it. And it was really the catalyst for me to um, start a holistic journey and to think about trying to broaden my perspective of resilience from not just mental and physical resilience, but to also thinking about emotional and spiritual resilience. And so within a week, I had surgery to remove the lump. And then I was at the stage where I was faced with the traditional treatment plan, which was to have two rounds of chemo and also radiation. And I was really struggling to make that decision because as a 40-year-old, I hopefully had half my life in front of me. And the long-term side effects, which included um, damage to lungs and, and heart, were really um, side effects that could affect my quality of life. And so I was at the stage where I was thinking that I wouldn't have traditional treatment. And uh, it wasn't until a nurse heard me actually say that, that she uh, referred me to Tanya. And that's how I started to develop up my integrated plan with Tanya. I just want to sort of dive a little bit into that decision because everything I imagine would have been happening very fast. And most people that are in the tunnel of a new diagnosis are just literally in a tunnel of just get this done. Um, what exactly was offered to you and what was it about what was offered to you that made you think, hang on a minute, I'm, I, I, I can't just tick this off? Yeah, so it was more the um, chemo that was offered that I found the side effects to be something that I wasn't prepared to put myself through. So um, being 40 at diagnosis and facing serious lung and heart damage at 60 or 65, that was really the thing that I struggled with. Was that stepped, stepped through with you? Did they say, right, we're going to save your life, but just sign here, this small print? No, in fact, um, the discussions around the side effects were probably brushed over and I I kept going back to them, but I struggled to really get an answer as to what that would mean in, in reality until I met with Tanya. So it Got was it. really hard to understand both the diagnosis, what the treatment plan would be and why, and um, what those side effects really meant in real life. Got it. So equipped with that big group of questions, you were like, I can't just just do this blindly, and then you went to see Ta Tanya. Is that how That's it right. all happened? Yeah. So, Tanya, tell us a bit about your professional journey. Let's let's dive back to the moment you your life changes and you meet Heather. <laughs> <laughs> how did you come to be a natural medicine practitioner? I think I was destined to become a natural medicine practitioner my entire life, and but not your average naturopath. I've come from a a very science and medical perspective in the background of my family and, and past experiences and past study. But to me, that was a incomplete program, an incomplete protocol. Um, and I saw my older siblings and, and my parents go through a whole range of 
um, medical conditions and deal with the consequences of that and the flaws within the system that I wanted to build bridges. You know, I've always been a bridge builder. doesn't really matter what about. I'm always trying to build bridges between people, trying to um, make things work. I'm a bit of a negotiator, so we're, we're working on that kind of personality throughout my life. Being one of eight children, you kind of work out how to mm. negotiate that space. So I think that was something that evolved through me, but my perspective of the medical system um, was seeing certain people close to me who really had intense experiences and also made choices that were a bit of a shock, uh, and yet they had good outcomes from it. For example, my father, he had three different types of cancer throughout his life, bowel, prostate, and thyroid cancer. And he was really the first person uh, to demonstrate to me that you can make, there are choices to be made within that system that you don't necessarily realise you have. So he had multiple surgeries, but he declined radiotherapy and chemotherapy throughout his life. And he lived to 83. So he he did well. That's a great outcome. Um, what do you think about that decision-making? How do you think he came to make an empowered decision, whereas I think many people probably outsource their decision-making or their power a little bit to others? Mm. Um, yes. I mean, my father had no medical background whatsoever, but he was a very uh, assertive person and he would listen to what everybody had to say and then make a decision. And I've certainly inherited those qualities in that he decided to ask all the questions and then go home and make a decision that felt right for him, given the consequences. He would thoroughly research and be provided with research and not leave that medical appointment until such time as he had adequate information for his own ability to make a decision on that. And that's something that I encourage with patients. But I guess that's something that's a advocacy side of my role that is something that's very important to me from that young age of sort of seeing that happen and really advocating for the patient because they're in that vulnerable position in a space in which they don't know how to navigate. You know, I call it oncology world because it's such a, a different language. It's a different space. It's a different democracy. Mm. It's different on every level. And so it's hard enough as it is trying to navigate that space, let alone dealing with what you're dealing with. And so what we need is people who can support that person. And we always talk about patient-centred therapy, which is a great phrase and we all can aspire to achieve that, but having the people in place that can can really just flesh it out with patients and see what fits with their perspective. Gonna, I want to loop back to Heather on that, um, in that my impression from your initial experience is that you didn't feel at the centre of the the treatment, so to speak. Does that, does that, um, do you think that is the, that is the cross point between the two of you? Like, when you went to see uh, Tanya, was that your first experience of feeling kind of like the priority in the care journey? Yeah, I guess the, the thing that Tanya did that no other medical professional had done to that point was not only spend more time with me, so the appointment time yeah. is much longer than you get when you meet an oncologist in the hospital, but she would talk me through things and then also write up a written report. And that's really invaluable if you're someone like me who likes to 
rationalise and and understand and analyse yeah. the information. So having something that you could take away was really important. Um, and I guess, the, I mean, the critical thing for me really was that Tanya focused on the healing. So how do you recover your good cells? Whereas the oncologists were focused on eradicating the cancer cells. And that's that's one part of your healing. But the healing that I was interested in had to be much broader than that. Let's try and paint a picture here. Uh, if we didn't have... Tanya, if you didn't have Tanya, what do you think your cancer journey might have looked like? Let's just strip it right back. If you'd just not met that nurse, not found Tanya, like you'd gone for the um, the 101 type treatment. Well, yeah, I guess that, that was the critical decision that I was struggling with. So I might not have had treatment. Um, I might have taken my chances. I had a, I think an because of the side effects that you yep. you pulled out of the fine print and you thought, hang on a minute, I can't live with this. So I had an 80% chance of surviving with no treatment, but a 20% chance of dying. Okay. And with treatment that reduced to 10%. So they halved my chance of dying. But, but I still had 80% chance of survivorship without it. Got it. So I could have focused on that or I could have focused on the 20%. And, of course, we have a natural bias towards the negative statistics. Got it. Well, you would have known that yeah, as an intellectual. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, look, I, I might have taken my chances. I don't know. It's really hard to say. I but think I probably would have delayed decisions and that probably is the critical thing when you're facing um, a fairly aggressive form of cancer. You need to make decisions quickly because I didn't have time. Yeah. So um, I think the inability to make a decision quickly would have ultimately been a decision because it. it would have affected my treatment. And so how did Tanya's input impact beyond empowering you to make a call? How did her decision or her practice impact the way in which you experienced treatment or what extra things you did? Like what were the add-ons? Yeah, look, I mean, some really simple things, but having a really good food plan that focused on diet, so trying to reduce inflammatory foods, but also focusing on protein, which aids your recovery. So I had one round of chemo where I didn't focus on the food plan well enough and I had an immediate side effects of really severe fatigue and, and nausea and found myself probably for two days on the couch crawling to the bathroom, not able to walk comfortably. Yeah, wow. And that was a direct relationship to the food that I'd eaten in the days prior to that. The hospital didn't say anything? The alternative advice that I was given on day one in chemo in the hospital was from a dietitian who told me just to focus on calories. So that was the difference in the advice. It was calories in. Like what sort of calories? Like six no, Snickers or? That's right. So there was, no, um, there was no information that really gave me a food plan. It was just focus on calories. And whereas when I went to Tanya, I got a really detailed food plan about what foods to avoid that were inflammatory, what foods to include how much. Um, and that was really reassuring because that's not something I'm qualified in. I'm not a, a dietitian. So jumping to you, Tanya, when you put these food plans together, what what's the st strategic intention? Mm. Like chemo is poisonous. Why does it matter? Like <laughs> they're, they're smashing her anyway. Mm. Well, they are smashing her. But what we want to do is tailor a plan. So I mean, I have a very individualist approach, so I write a plan for each person that's different 
Um, there's some themes. So, for example, there's some foods that you would have pre and post surgery. There's a lot of research about immunonutrition and certain foods that can be of benefit in, in reducing risk of postoperative infections or enhancing the healing process and reducing scarring. That's something that can happen with specific functional foods. But when it comes to an integrative plan for a particular type of cancer, it depends on the type of cancer. So, for example, Heather had triple negative breast cancer. It would be different if she had ER positive breast cancer. There was estrogen receptor involvement that has a different diet. So for her, her diet was mostly a whole food, Mediterranean-based, pesco-vegetarian diet. We were trying to limit foods that were not functionally effective during that time, so processed foods and anything rich in sugar and other um, foods that might affect her blood sugar levels and things like that. But then on top of that, we had to provide support for her, which was specific to her chemo. So she had the classic textbook treatment of four rounds of AC followed by 12... Oh, What's no, AC? We've got to break that down. <laughs> Two different drugs, um, uh, adriamycin or doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide. And Heather actually had dose-dense chemotherapy, so she had more frequent doses of chemotherapy and then she had more frequent higher doses of another drug called paclitaxel or taxol. So if without your plan, like what, uh, what is the average cancer patient eating and what's the impact of that? Well, I guess there's more interest in diet as actually something that can have an impact on cancer and the cancer outcomes. But most of the patients that I talk to in clinic tell me that they're, they're instructed to eat whatever they want or eat whatever they can. Of course, there's, you're on another steroid called dexamethasone, which of course messes with your blood sugar, so that makes you crave carbohydrates. So most people want to eat you know, toast with Vegemite on it or mm. white, white bread, white pasta, that kind of thing. And if that's all that you can really eat, fine, but we're trying to sort of enhance that, that function of the body so that you detoxify properly, so that you can recover, so that your energy is going to be as balanced as it can be. And we're also trying to focus on the side effects of the treatment. So there's certain side effects of each of those different types of chemotherapy that we uh, look for research to try to minimise those side effects and maximise the outcomes. So I know, Heather, you've mentioned to me before, you went over and above just supporting yourself nutritionally. It went down to the level of, say, your decisions around which support drugs you did and didn't take, like steroids. Yeah. Did you want to just tell us a bit about what happened on that subject? Yeah, so one of the things they don't really explain to you is that when you have chemo, there's a whole lot of steroids that they prescribe before and during to allow your body to cope with it. And um, I had had quite severe reaction to the steroids in terms of loss of sleep in the first round and was then had an impact on my mental health and, and increased anxiety levels. So... Um, one of the things I negotiated with one of my oncologists was to reduce the dose each time, which was effective for the first round of AC. When I went in for Taxol, um, I was prescribed with a large dose of steroids to take home the night before and then also to take in the morning before I went into hospital. And I was very concerned that taking steroids the night before meant I wouldn't sleep and that my mental health would be really affected by that. So I contacted the oncologist and um, explained that I was concerned about my mental health and anxiety levels and was told that I didn't need to take them, which 
Mm. I guess was just a bit of a concern for me that there wasn't a clinical reason that I needed to take them, but they were they were just offered because they were part of the guidelines. Um, so a party bag of extra yeah. things. So again, if you don't ask the question, you don't know whether you need to take these things. And so I was glad that I'd asked the question because I then had a low dose of steroids when I went into hospital the next day. Um, and yeah, my mental health was much better because of that. Tanya, I want to ask you a bit about what happens with all of these additional therapies and approaches, like once someone gets to the end of the the main tunnel of the, you know, the intensive chemo, radio, surgery, which you had all of, how, how, how does a patient typically face their recovery from that point onwards? What happens? Well... I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that most people are in a tunnel of treatment. So most people during their treatment process are just putting one foot in front of the other, just trying to get through it, get through it, get through it. And we've all got other pressures, the family or children or whatever else is happening in our world that we're trying to manage as well. And so it's often at the end, and and certainly Heather can uh, elaborate on her experience there where once you're starting to get discharged from the hospitals and people are going, oh, well, you're done. Yep. See you in a year for the next lot of imaging. Go back to your life. You know, that's often when the patient is slapped in the face with the reality of what on earth has just happened over the last year. And that's when where we step in again, just to, to try to support their return to vitality, but also supporting the processing of that whole experience. You know, how do you actually put that in perspective? How do you deal with the fact that you've irreversibly evolved through this process and everything changes in your world? This is something that's, I think, the hardest thing about the entire process is actually what happens at the end. Would you agree, Heather? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cancer for me wasn't a medical issue. It was about facing my own death. And so that's something that's very profound and until you're faced with that, you really don't know how you're going to respond. So um, having someone like Tanya who not only gave me a heads up that this is going to happen, um, I remember having the conversation with her where she said, okay, now you need to prepare for this sort of emotional slump. Um, but I was then able to talk to my family and friends about that and give them a warning to sort of look out for me, which, you know, allowed my support network to do their job. Um and it also meant that I was able to then explore other holistic options and really start to to do the, the I guess, the transformation and the recovery across a, a wide range of things. And it sounds like that's not something that the mainframe system talks about, mentions. So no. they're kind of, it's quite mechanical. That's right. So as Tanya said, you finish your treatment and you're told to... Um, prepare for a scan in 12 months. And that's that's your follow-up. I have three oncologists, so I, I'm lucky I get to see an oncologist every three months. But that's unusual because I chose to have three oncologists. If you just had one, you would probably have six monthly checkups. I feel like we could go on and talk for quite some time about this entire space and about each of your individual stories. And I want to thank Tanya, thank you for coming in and sharing um, your professional perspective, and Heather being so generous and sharing your story. If you want to find Tanya Wells, you can find her at Melbourne Integrative Oncology Group. And if you want to find Heather, you can ask Tanya. Um, but thank you both very much for such a fascinating and in-depth dive into the first-hand experience of cancer. Thanks, Thanks very much for having us. 
Listening to Tanya and Heather, I was both heartened but also taken aback by their experiences. Heather was an incredibly fit person when cancer struck, and I will admit, I am often left asking what the impact of major emotional trauma is on the genesis of cancer. I'd like to know how to find out. How might we measure the cellular stress of losing a partner or another life event? I was also reminded and unsettled about how sometimes the best intended protocols don't fit all. Heather's experience of being prescribed steroids being one case in point. Listening to Tanya, I was left wondering how might we mainstream what she has to offer? Shouldn't all cancer sufferers be given access to great nutrition and personalised holistic care? This may be another episode. For now, thank you for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.